Well, on this Sunday after Thanksgiving, I am very thankful to be in worship together. I'm particularly thankful to Eric and to all of you here in person and online for trusting me with the pulpit this morning. Will you pray with me? O God who reigns, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you on this day. Amen. Well, last week before Thanksgiving, a friend sent me a video that was a recent sketch from the show The Daily Show. Confess I don't watch The Daily Show, but this sketch has been on my mind. It features the comedian Leslie Jones, and it plays as if it's an ad for a holiday service in which this Thanksgiving you can pay Jones $29.99 to come and teach you how to politely shut down awkward moments at the family table and handle those annoying relatives in your family. The thing is, Leslie Jones is not always polite in this sketch. There's a moment in which someone starts talking about a hot-button political issue and she interjects, that's the conversation you're trying to have while we're all trying to be happy? And then someone else starts going into how lazy young kids are today. She says, who are you calling lazy? You can't even bring a proper pie to Thanksgiving. My favorite moment is when Leslie employs her back-to-basics technique. When one family member begins to say something that sounds like it's about to get transphobic, Leslie just starts screeching in her face until she stops. I'm sure we've all wanted to screech in someone's face before, and this video is funny for whomever we are. The holidays are a time in which we remember that we are related to people, biologically or otherwise, with whom we don't always get along or with whom we don't quite agree. We may wish that we could just set aside our differences and enjoy the holiday season together, but that video reminds us that sometimes that's easier said than done. As it's been said today, we are gathering on a church holiday that doesn't always receive a lot of attention, the competition of Thanksgiving, Advent, and Christmas. But this morning brings into focus some of those questions we have about politics in our world. Today's Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday of the church year. The liturgical calendar indeed begins with Advent, the anticipation of Jesus' birth, the first Sunday of which is next week. So today we recognize the end of the story in which Christ comes in full sovereignty. The church calendar is thus a full circle, beginning with baby Jesus in a manger and ending with Christ being crowned king of God's kingdom. The thing is, is we don't have kings in our political system here in the USA, which can make it a bit tricky to understand what it might mean to call Christ king for us. What might this celebration be for us today? Why might we call Christ king? The gospel re reading that Eric read this year for Christ the King Sunday is a passage from Matthew 25 that comes at the end of a long conversation in which Jesus, kind of like Leslie Jones in that Daily Show sketch, is not quite polite. For three chapters of Matthew, Jesus has bluntly condemned the religious authorities of his day before teaching about some coming time of God's punishment. He never goes back to Jones' basics. He does not screech at anyone in this passage. But that bit about eternal fire and damnation are particularly in your face. 
There are several passages in the Bible that talks about a coming day of judgment, a day in which Christ will be revealed as the true king of the whole earth. These are the passages to which we turn on Christ the King Sunday. Matthew 25 in particular talks about God gathering all of the nations and weeding out the righteous from the accursed. At first reading, this is no warm holiday message about getting along with those people with whom we don't agree. God separates people eternally with one rubric at work, how they treat the members of God's family who are hungry, thirsty, and in need. Confess that I don't always like these judgment scenes in scriptures. They're a bit scary and seem like they belong to Halloween a few weeks ago. But this passage is one that I do like. It's inspired many Christians, including myself, to be convicted that God's judgment has less to do with perfect belief and more to do with our behavior, specifically how we treat our neighbors in need. It is a harsh passage, but it draws attention, I think, to God's concern for the marginalized and the oppressed, just as we do to others, maybe we do to God. Whenever I think about this passage, I think about a different story that I heard in a workshop some years ago. It begins like this. A group of people live in a village where they have everything that they need. One day, a group of these people decide to set out and explore the forest around them. They end up going further than they've ever gone before when they begin to hear through the trees the mighty roar of a river. They get closer and closer, excited to see some new part of the world they've never experienced. But as they approach the bank, a cry rises above the river's roar. What's that? Someone asks before pointing to something in the river. It turns out it is a baby floating helplessly in the current. Immediately, they jump in, rescue the child, and rush back to the village to bring them to safety. Then the next day, a group sets out again to find this mysterious river. Soon enough, they hear the roar and get closer. They wait for a little while before they begin to hear another baby crying. When they see it, they jump in, rescue them as well, and rush back to the village again. Then the following day, a group returns again to the river, where, sure enough, another baby comes floating down. When they rescue this one, though, not everyone returns home. Some stay, and soon they find another baby floating down the river. Then another, and another. What do they do next? They go upstream. It's not enough to go back and forth rescuing these babies from downstream. These people need to go upstream and find out why this is happening in the first place. The facilitator of this workshop presented this story as an illustration for what justice, or perhaps the kingdom of God, looks like embodied in the world. The babies floating down the river are a metaphor for social issues and injustices, from poverty to homelessness, hunger to hatred. God calls us not just to care for people in crisis, but to go upstream and work against these issues and injustices in the first place. 
When the facilitator first explained the story and opened it up to the workshop participants for conversations, someone, I think it might have actually been me, mentioned Matthew 25 and God's concern for the least of these. The facilitator affirmed the connection, but then said that she does not quite like that phrase, the least of these. Those who are in crisis are no less than anybody else, she taught before continuing to say that she didn't even quite like this image of babies floating down the river. It seems to imply that people on the brunt end of marginalization are somehow helpless, when in fact they are people like everybody else. We all belong to one family of humanity alive in God's world. We must be careful, then, she warned, not to build artificial boundaries between an us and a them the us who help them in need. Turns out that our Christ the King passage this morning, Matthew 25, is not quite about a universal rubric with which we can measure people as good or bad, righteous or cursed, and us versus them in the first place. As much as many people, myself included, want Matthew 25 to be this simple condemnation of marginalization and injustice, this passage is actually doing something else. In his commentary, Matthew in the Margins, my former professor, Warren Carter, points out that this promise of judgment about which Jesus teaches is actually pointed to people who refuse Christians and their need with their message of the gospel. This term, sheep, was used specifically about Jesus' followers, and you may have caught that it doesn't just say the least of these, but the least of these who are members of my family. Matthew 25 is not a unilateral condemnation of marginalization, for that's not what Jesus' followers even needed. Carter points out that most of Jesus' followers were poor. They were marginalized. They knew what it was like to be hungry, thirsty, and in need. And they knew that God was displeased with the way the Roman kingdom worked leaving all but a few elite to struggle daily for sustenance. Jesus' followers did not need some future day of absolute retribution. Instead, they needed encouragement that God identified with them, related to them when they were in need and struggled to find welcome in the world. That's what this passage is, not a rubric by which we can judge people as right or wrong as much as we may want those around certain holiday dinners. Instead, Matthew 25 is an encouragement that God is present with and within the people dedicating their lives to embodying the realm, the reign, or the kingdom of God. As we said, Christ the King Sunday, this church holiday today, is a relatively new addition to the church calendar. My math is right, it's only been around 98 years. Instituted in the wake of World War I, Christ the King was intended to instill hope in a politically fraught world and sought to speak against fascism and the systems of violence that were revealed in that first great war. As Eric said in his Friday email reflection this week, Christ the King is a proclamation of hope in Jesus and that love, truth, and grace are his politics and peace with justice is his platform. 
Within the first year that Christ the King Sunday was celebrated, Kansas City built a large World War I memorial that has since become home to the only World War I museum in the nation. When I lived in Kansas City, I thought it was a beautiful monument. It's in the middle of the city, has a great view of downtown, and I'd often walk around there on a nice day off or with friends in town. But I always found harrowing a certain inscription on the side of the memorial. It says this, Let us strive on to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all the nations. After that first world war, we did strive for this peace, but it did not work. Within two decades, the world was at war again, and then again, and then again. And still to this day, violence and genocide dominate our headlines. In this century that we Christians have celebrated Christ the King Sunday, we have not discovered some supernatural reign of peace where everything was made perfect. But I don't think that was ever the point of calling Christ King. We did not proclaim some simple reality in which Jesus comes back as an earthly king or prime minister or president. Instead, Christ the King Sunday reminds us each year that our whole story is wrapped up in the eternity of God's realm, which is radically different from the violent and broken systems and kingdoms of our world. Just like Christ the King Sunday is about something bigger than a perfect future yet to come, our passage today in Matthew 25 was never a prediction about God permanently separating the good from the wicked. These apocalyptic passages in Scripture instead reveal God's ongoing attitude to the living world. It's not about the future, but about the present. Matthew 25 in particular does not promise some retribution yet to come. Instead, it encourages its readers to know that God identifies with them, relates to them as members of my own family. The thing is, the story of early Christianity is one of people discovering that God does not draw narrow lines around who is in and out of God's family. The other passage we heard today, Barbara read from Psalm 100, which celebrates that God has made us and we are God's. All people share a single sacred source. All of humanity belongs to God. This teaching that just as you did it to them, you do it to me, is more than a reminder that God condemns marginalization, for we already know that. Instead, it teaches that whenever someone is marginalized, oppressed, left in need, God himself cries out for liberation. The facilitator of that workshop in which I learned this parable of the babies floating down the river was on staff for an organization called The Open Table in Nashville, Tennessee. This interfaith ministry works around issues of homelessness, from building grassroots community from, with folk experiencing it, to doing advocacy and social awareness across the city and state. 
The organization grew organically from a ragtag team, as they described themselves, who would volunteer and befriend people living in a community known as Tent City, which was located under the bridges downtown Nashville. In 2010, when a huge flood, flood hit the city, Tent City was destroyed. This ragtag team then helped with community leaders from within Tent City and elsewhere to relocate many of them to an unoccupied patch of land elsewhere in the city. It was surrounded by a forest off the beaten path, but nevertheless soon, semi-nearby neighbors started to complain about the homeless in their backyard. They ended up finding a Methodist church that offered their parsonage to serve then as a transitional home this organization, The Open Table, was formally born. In the years since their inception, The Open Table has done all sorts of upstream, downstream, and village work with people. And in doing so, they embody mutuality in their activism and advocacy. They model a form of power that we might call power with instead of power over rather than, for example, showing up at City Hall on behalf of people experiencing homelessness, the open table empowers people from within these communities to stand up for themselves. I think the open table takes seriously then Matthew 25, for they don't just help the least of these, they see God in all people and practice a new realm, a new reign, a new kingdom, a new way of being together. Theologian Marjorie Suhaki argues that the power of God is something that is fundamentally relational. It is a power of mutuality, not of coercion. She says that God works with the world as it is to bring it to where it can be. And thus, God does not make God's kingdom happen all on its own, Instead, God invites us to be co-creators of God's realm within our living world. This power of God that we recognize on Christ the King Sunday is more like that power with modeled by the open table than any power over. God is not a king on a dictatorial throne from whom we wait a future day of absolute dominion, Instead, God's kingdom, as Jesus teaches, is within us, at hand, in our midst. So friends, as we celebrate Christ the King Sunday today, we celebrate this good glory of God's power with and within us, empowering us to be with our neighbors, standing together for justice and wholeness, knowing that, indeed, we all belong to the one family of God's humanity. Amen.